The third and last of the objections that we're going to consider at the moment is the one that comes from the question, how does a state ensure that the people its education system produces have the skills needed to service the, the industry and commercial interests that the country has, particularly at a time where knowledge economies are the basis of economic strength. In order to answer that question, we should first reflect on the extent to which education, as well as being a means of enriching the lives of those educated, has also been an instrument of control. The state has decided who should go to school, when, what they should learn, how they should be assessed, whether they should be allowed to be educated to certain standards, to certain ages and in certain ways, and the curriculum and all the points associated with it have very much been dictated by certain cultural presuppositions. Because educational institutions until very recently more or less had a monopoly on knowledge and certainly on the more technical aspects of knowledge, it has been possible to control not only when and where and at what age and how children learn, but what they learn and what therefore their criteria are. It's been a problem, a common problem in education that the enthusiasm of children of primary school age wanes when they go to secondary school. To some extent, that is simply a feature of puberty, growing up and all the issues that adolescents have to face and deal with. But it's also a product of an increasing compulsive nature or compulsory nature, I should say, to education. Whereas in primary school, almost anything is of interest and almost anything needs to be known so children can learn freely. From the age of about 11 onwards, external constraints become dominant in education. The things that children are supposed to need to know Obviously, they are mother tongue, but often also mathematics, elements of science, history, geography, foreign languages, sometimes economics, and other things like physical educa education and so on. All of these are dictated by those who think and believe and are often held to know what's best for those children. But the children themselves for decades and centuries have been saying that that isn't really what they want. Now, of course, a cynic would say that what any adolescent really wants is sex, drugs and rock and roll, but that's not really a fair representation of adolescent mentality. The problem is that adolescents are not allowed to develop the way they want to, and therefore teachers often simply as childminders in the face of parental ambitions to be doing else other things and earning money elsewhere, 
teachers find themselves fighting a battle with children who don't want to be learning either what they are required to learn or in the way that the educational system requires them to learn it. The sequence may be wrong, the content may be wrong, the methods may be wrong, the assessment may be wrong, the teaching and learning styles that are stereotypical of a classroom simply don't suit an enormous proportion of adolescent human beings. But we persist with them because we really don't have any alternative. The whole point here is, of course, that there is now an alternative. And yes, the point is well made that not everybody wants to learn by sitting in front of a computer screen all day. But most of these chatbots, and particularly with speech-to-text and text-to-speech technology, can now really be treated almost as if they were teachers. One can have a conversation, one can listen to the answers, one can put counter-questions, one can challenge, one can argue. And all the way through, the chatbots will respond patiently, and they will listen, and they will respond constructively, and they will do their best to dissuade, shall we say, the children that are interacting with them from being abusive. And even if the children are abusive, the chatbot, I'm sure, really doesn't care. So we've got an opportunity now to allow every child to pursue an educational trajectory of their own choosing. And as I've said already in a previous episode, the argument that says, but that might mean that the state doesn't produce the children that it needs or the young adults that it needs to service the industries that it needs to provide with employees. Well, I think perhaps one should say, well, so much the worse for the industry. It isn't, to my mind, for the state to tell people how they have to live their lives and to educate them in such a way as to predispose them to be the fodder that services industry or commerce or whatever it might be just isn't right. And neither is an educational or economic system that can only survive for the benefit of a minority on the basis of what is in little more than the servitude of the majority. So what I think this educational revolution that I am foreseeing will produce, I hesitate to say it, is a social revolution. Because people will no longer need to learn what the system requires them to learn and until very recently and even now has the power to force them to learn if they are ever to earn a living because people will be able to dictate their own trajectories and choose their own lives and earn their livings in their own way and by being good at the things that they're better disposed to being they may well find themselves in situations where they make far more of an impact on the world than they could ever have done otherwise. But then, of course, under certain political assumptions, the number of people you want to make an impact on the world needs to be curtailed and constrained because you wouldn't want too many people sharing all the limited number of goodies that there are to go round. But that's another story.